You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. The Fourth Part Chapter 16 It was only the 20th of September when Agnes and the children reached Paris. Mrs. Norbury and her brother Francis had then already started on their journey to Italy at least three weeks before the date at which the new hotel was to open for the reception of travelers. The person answerable for this premature departure was Francis Westwick. Like his younger brother Henry, he had increased his pecuniary resources by his own enterprise and ingenuity, with this difference, that his speculations were connected with the arts. He had made money, in the first instance, by a weekly newspaper, and he had then invested his profits in a London theatre. This latter enterprise, admirably conducted, had been rewarded by the public with steady and liberal encouragement. Pondering over a new form of theatrical attraction for the coming winter season, Francis had determined to revive the languid public taste for the ballet by means of an entertainment of his own invention, combining dramatic interest with dancing. He was now, accordingly, in search of the best dancer, possessed of the indispensable personal attractions, who is to be found in the theatres of the continent. Hearing from his foreign correspondents of two women who had made successful first appearances, one at Milan and one at Florence, he had arranged to visit those cities and to judge of the merits of the dancers for himself, before he joined the bride and bridegroom. His widowed sister, having friends at Florence, whom she was anxious to see, readily accompanied him. The Montberrys remained at Paris, until it was time to present themselves at the family meeting in Venice. Henry found them still in the French capital when he arrived from London on his way to the opening of the new hotel. Against Lady Mountberry's advice, he took the opportunity of renewing his addresses to Agnes. He could hardly have chosen a worse time for pleading his cause with her. The gaieties of Paris, quite incomprehensibly to herself as well as to everyone about her, had a depressing effect on her spirits. She had no illness to complain of. She shared willingly in the ever-varying succession of amusements offered to strangers by the ingenuity of the liveliest people in the world. But nothing roused her. She remained persistently dull and weary through it all. In this frame of mind and body, she was in no humor to receive Henry's ill-timed dresses with favor, or even with patience. She plainly and positively refused to listen to him. "'Why do you remind me of what I have suffered?' she asked, petulantly. "'Don't you see that it has left its mark on me for life?' "'I thought I knew something of women by this time,' Henry said, "'appealing privately to Lady Mountberry for consolation. "'But Agnes completely puzzles me. "'It is a year since Mountberry's death.' 
and she remains as devoted to his memory as if he had died faithful to her. She still feels the loss of him, as none of us feel it. "'She is the truest woman that ever breathed the breath of life,' Lady Mountberry answered. "'Remember that, and you will understand her. "'Can such a woman as Agnes give her love or refuse it, according to circumstances?' Because the man was unworthy of her, was he less the man of her choice? The truest and best friend to him, little as he deserved it in his lifetime, she naturally remains the truest and best friend to his memory now. If you really love her, wait, and trust to your two best friends, to time and to me. There is my advice. Let your own experience decide whether it is not the best advice that I can offer— "'Resume your journey to Venice tomorrow, "'and when you take leave of Agnes, "'speak to her as cordially as if nothing had happened.' "'Henry wisely followed this advice. "'Thoroughly understanding him, "'Agnes made the leave-taking friendly and pleasant on her side. "'When he stopped at the door for a last look at her, "'she hurriedly turned her head "'so that her face was hidden from him. "'Was that a good sign?' Lady Mountberry, accompanying Henry down the stairs, said, "'Yes, decidedly. Right when you get to Venice. We shall wait here to receive letters from Arthur and his wife, and we shall time our departure for Italy accordingly.' A week passed, and no letter came from Henry. Some days later a telegram was received from him. It was dispatched from Milan instead of from Venice, and it brought this strange message— I have left the hotel, will return, on the arrival of Arthur and his wife. Address, meanwhile, Albergo Real, Milan. Preferring Venice before all other cities of Europe, and having arranged to remain there until the family meeting took place, what unexpected event had led Henry to alter his plans? And why did he state the bare fact without adding a word of explanation? Let the narrative follow him, and find the answer to those questions at Venice. Chapter 17 The Palace Hotel, appealing for encouragement mainly to English and American travelers, celebrated the opening of its doors, as a matter of course, by the giving of a grand banquet and the delivery of a long succession of speeches. Delayed on his journey, Henry Westwick only reached Venice, in time to join the guests over their coffee and cigars. Observing the splendor of the reception rooms, and taking note, especially, of the artful mixture of comfort and luxury in the bedchambers, he began to share the old nurse's view of the future, and to contemplate, seriously, the coming dividend of ten percent. The hotel was beginning well, at all events. So much interest in the enterprise had been aroused at home and abroad, by profuse advertising, that the whole accommodation of the building had been secured by travelers of all nations for the opening night. Henry only obtained one of the small rooms on the upper floor by a lucky accident, the absence of the gentleman who had written to engage it. He was quite satisfied, and was on his way to bed when another accident altered his prospects for the night, and moved him into another and a better room. Ascending on his way to the higher regions as far as the first floor of the hotel, Henry's attention was attracted by an angry voice protesting in a strong New England accent 
against one of the greatest hardships that can be inflicted on a citizen of the United States. The hardship of sending him to bed without gas in his room. The Americans are not only the most hospitable people to be found on the face of the earth, they are, under certain conditions, the most patient and good-tempered people as well. But they are human, and the limit of American endurance is found in the obsolete institution of a bedroom candle. The American traveler, in the present case, declined to believe that his bedroom was in a complete finished state without a gas burner. The manager pointed to the fine antique decorations, renewed and regilt on the walls and the ceiling, and explained that the emanations of burning gas light would certainly spoil them in the course of a few months. To this, the traveler replied that it was possible, but that he did not understand decorations. A bedroom with gas in it was what he was used to, and what he wanted, and was what he was determined to have. The compliant manager volunteered to ask some other gentleman, housed on the inferior upper story, which was lit throughout with gas, to change rooms. Hearing this, and being quite willing to exchange a small bedchamber for a large one, Henry volunteered to be the other gentleman. The excellent American shook hands with him on the spot. "'You are a cultured person, sir,' he said, "'and you will no doubt understand the decorations.' Henry looked at the number of the room on the door as he opened it. The number was fourteen. Tired and sleepy, he naturally anticipated a good night's rest. In the thoroughly healthy state of his nervous system, he slept as well in a bed abroad as in a bed at home. Without the slightest assignable reason, however, his just expectations were disappointed. The luxurious bed, the well-ventilated room the delicious tranquility of Venice by night, all were in favor of his sleeping well. He never slept at all. An indescribable sense of depression and discomfort kept him waking through darkness and daylight alike. He went down to the coffee room as soon as the hotel was astir and ordered some breakfast. Another unaccountable change in himself appeared with the appearance of the meal. He was absolutely without appetite. An excellent omelette and cutlets cooked to perfection, he sent away untasted. He, whose appetite never failed him, whose digestion was still equal to any demands on it. The day was bright and fine. He sent for a gondola and was rowed to the Lido. Out on the airy lagoon he felt like a new man. He had not left the hotel ten minutes before he was fast asleep in the gondola, Waking on reaching the landing place, he crossed the Lido and enjoyed a morning swim in the Adriatic. There was only a poor restaurant on the island in those days, but his appetite was now ready for anything. He ate whatever was offered to him, like a famished man. He could hardly believe, when he reflected on it, that he had sent away untasted his excellent breakfast at the hotel." Returning to Venice, he spent the rest of the day in the picture galleries and the churches. Toward six o'clock, his gondola took him back, with another fine appetite, to meet some traveling acquaintances with whom he had engaged to dine at the table of the hotel. The dinner was deservedly rewarded with the highest approval by every guest in the hotel, but one. To Henry's astonishment, the appetite with which he had entered the house 
mysteriously, and completely left him when he sat down to table. He could drink some wine, but he could literally eat nothing. "'What in the world is the matter with you?' his traveling acquaintances asked. He could honestly answer, "'I know no more than you do.' When night came, he gave his comfortable and beautiful bedroom another trial. The result of the second experiment was a repetition of the result of the first. Again, he felt the all-pervading sense of depression and discomfort. Again, he passed a sleepless night. And once more, when he tried to eat his breakfast, his appetite completely failed him. This personal experience of the new hotel was too extraordinary to be passed over in silence. Henry mentioned it to his friends in the public room, in the hearing of the manager. The manager, naturally zealous in defense of the hotel, was a little hurt at the implied reflection cast on number 14. He invited the travelers present to judge for themselves whether Mr. Westwick's bedroom was to blame for Mr. Westwick's sleepless nights. And he especially appealed to a gray-headed gentleman, a guest at the breakfast table of an English traveler, to take the lead in the investigation. "'This is Dr. Bruno, our first physician in Venice,' he explained. "'I appeal to him to say if there are any unhealthy influences in Mr. Westwick's room.' Introduced to number 14, the doctor looked round him with a certain appearance of interest, which was noticed by everyone present. "'The last time I was in this room,' he said, "'was on a melancholy occasion. "'It was before the palace was changed into a hotel,' I was in professional attendance on an English nobleman who died here. One of the persons present inquired the name of the nobleman. Dr. Bruno answered, without the slightest suspicion that he was speaking before a brother of the dead man, Lord Mountberry. Henry quietly left the room, without saying a word to anybody. He was not, in any sense of the term, a superstitious man but he felt, nevertheless, an insurmountable reluctance to remaining in the hotel. He decided on leaving Venice. To ask for another room would be, as he could plainly see, an offense in the eyes of the manager. To remove to another hotel would be to openly abandon an establishment in the success of which he had a pecuniary interest. Leaving a note for Arthur Barville on his arrival in Venice, in which he merely mentioned that he had gone to look at the Italian lakes, and that a line addressed to his hotel at Milan would bring him back again, he took the afternoon train to Padua and dined with his usual appetite and slept as well as ever that night. The next day, a gentleman and his wife, perfect strangers to the Montberry family, returning to England by way of Venice, arrived at the hotel and occupied number 14. Still mindful of the slur that had been cast on one of his best bedchambers, the manager took occasion to ask the travelers the next morning how they liked their room. They left him to judge for himself how well they were satisfied by remaining a day longer in Venice than they had originally planned to do, solely for the purpose of enjoying the excellent accommodation offered to them by the new hotel. "'We have met with nothing like it in Italy,' they said. "'You may rely on our recommending you to all our friends.' On the day when number 14 was again vacant, an English lady, traveling alone with her maid, arrived at the hotel, saw the room, and at once engaged it. The lady was Mrs. Norbury. 
she had left Francis Westwick at Milan, occupied in negotiating for the appearance at his theatre of the new dancer at the Scala. Not having heard to the contrary, Mrs. Norbury supposed that Arthur Barville and his wife had already arrived at Venice. She was more interested in meeting the young married couple than in awaiting the result of the hard bargaining which delayed the engagement of the new dancer, and she volunteered to make her brother's apologies if his theatrical business caused him to be late in keeping his appointment at the honeymoon festival. Mrs. Norbury's experience of number 14 differed entirely from her brother Henry's experience of the room. Falling asleep as readily as usual, her repose was disturbed by a succession of frightful dreams. The central figure in every one of them being the figure of her dead brother, the first Lord Mountberry. She saw him starving in a loathsome prison. She saw him pursued by assassins and dying under their knives. She saw him drowning in immeasurable depths of dark water. She saw him in bed on fire, burning to death in the flames. She saw him tempted by a shadowy creature to drink and dying of the poisonous draft. The reiterated horror of these dreams had such an effect on her that she rose with the dawn of day, afraid to trust herself again in bed. In the old times, she had been noted in the family as the one member of it who lived on affectionate terms with Mount Barry. His other sister and his brothers were constantly quarreling with him. Even his mother owned that her eldest son was of all her children, the child whom she least liked. Sensible and resolute woman as she was, Mrs. Norbury shuddered with terror as she sat at the window of her room, watching the sunrise and thinking of her dreams. She made the first excuse that occurred to her when her maid came in at the usual hour and noticed how ill she looked. The woman was of so superstitious a temperament that it would have been in the last degree indiscreet to trust her with the truth. Mrs. Norbury merely remarked that she had not found the bed quite to her liking on account of the large size of it. She was accustomed at home, as her maid knew, to sleep in a small bed. Informed of this objection later in the day, the manager regretted that he could only offer to the lady the choice of one other bedchamber, numbered 38, and situated immediately over the bedchamber which she desired to leave. Mrs. Norbury accepted the proposed change of quarters. She was now about to pass her second night in the room occupied in the old days of the palace by Baron Rivar. Once more she fell asleep as usual, and once more the frightful dreams of the first night terrified her, following each other in the same succession. This time her nerves, already shaken, were not equal to the renewed torture of terror inflicted on them. She threw on her dressing gown and rushed out of her room in the middle of the night. The porter, alarmed by the banging of the door, met her hurrying headlong down the stairs in search of the first human being she could find to keep her company. Considerably surprised at this last new manifestation of the famous English eccentricity, the man looked at the hotel register and led the lady upstairs again to the room occupied by her maid. The maid was not asleep, and, more wonderful still, was not even undressed. She received her mistress, quietly. When they were alone, and when Mrs. Norbury had, as a matter of necessity, 
taken her attendant into her confidence, the woman made a very strange reply. "'I have been asking about the hotel at the servant's supper tonight,' she said. "'The valet of one of the gentlemen staying here "'has heard that the late Lord Mountberry "'was the last person who lived in the palace "'before it was made into a hotel. "'The room he died in, ma'am, "'was the room you slept in last night. "'Your room tonight is the room just above it.' "'I said nothing for fear of frightening you. "'For my own part, I have passed the night as you see.' "'keeping my light on, and reading my Bible. "'In my opinion, no member of your family "'can hope to be happy or comfortable in this house.' "'What do you mean?' "'Please to let me explain myself, ma'am. "'When Mr. Henry Westwick was here, "'I have this from the valet, too, "'he occupied the room his brother died in, "'without knowing it, like you. "'For two nights he never closed his eyes. "'Without any reason for it, the valet heard him tell the gentleman in the coffee room he could not sleep. He felt so low and so wretched in himself. And what is more, when daytime came, he couldn't even eat while he was under this roof. You may laugh at me, ma'am, but even a servant may draw her own conclusions. It's my conclusion that something happened to my lord, which we none of us know about, when he died in this house. His ghost walks in torment until he can tell it, and the living persons related to him are the persons who feel he is near them. Those persons may yet see him in the time to come. Don't, pray don't stay any longer in this dreadful place. I wouldn't stay another night here myself. No, not for anything that could be offered me. Mrs. Norbury at once set her servant's mind at ease on this last point. I don't think about it as you do, she said gravely, but I should like to speak to my brother of what has happened. We will go back to Milan. Some hours necessarily elapsed before they could leave the hotel by the first train in the forenoon. In that interval, Mrs. Norbury's maid found an opportunity of confidentially informing the valet of what had passed between her mistress and herself. The valet had other friends to whom he had related the circumstances in his turn, in due course of time, the narrative, passing from mouth to mouth, reached the ears of the manager. He instantly saw that the credit of the hotel was in danger unless something was done to retrieve the character of the room numbered 14. English travelers, well acquainted with the peerage of their native country, informed him that Henry Westwick and Mrs. Norbury were by no means the only members of the Mountberry family. Curiosity might bring more of them to the hotel after hearing what had happened. The manager's ingenuity easily hit on the obvious means of misleading them in this case. The numbers of all the rooms were enameled in blue on white china plates screwed to the doors. He ordered a new plate to be prepared, bearing the number 13A, and he kept the room empty after its tenant for the time being had gone away, "'until the plate was ready. "'He then renumbered the room, "'placing the removed number 14 "'on the door of his own room on the second floor, "'which, not being to let, "'had not previously been numbered at all. "'By this device, number 14 disappeared at once "'and forever from the books of the hotel "'as the number of a bedroom to let. "'Having warned the servants to be aware of gossiping with travellers "'on the subject of the changed numbers under penalty of being dismissed, 
The manager composed his mind with the reflection that he had done his duty to his employers. Now, he thought to himself, with an excusable sense of triumph, let the whole family come here if they like. The hotel is a match for them. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.